0: I'm stoked for today's podcast. This was a conversation that started, I don't know, about a month or two ago that I'm really glad we're having on the podcast. Hello, welcome to the QTR podcast. Damn glad to have you here. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is 100% free. YouTube does not allow me to monetize, so it is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out some of my patrons, and we are going to get on our get On our merry way. I'm going to try to speak English today, although so far in the first 30 seconds, it's not looking good for me. This podcast is brought to you by my friends over at JM Bullion. They are my exclusive gold and silver provider, so we'll be talking a lot about the Fed today. And if you think the Fed is full of shit, I like to own gold and silver bullion as a way to hedge against people that may not have any clue what the fuck they're doing. So I always go to JM Bullion for my physical gold and silver. QTR podcast listeners have their own sales rep at JM Bullion, the lovely Laura. You can email her, laura at jmbullion.com. She is there just for you guys. If you don't want to navigate the website, which you're more than welcome to do, the website is very easy. They always have a lot of inventory. The prices are wonderful. They turn around my orders very quickly. They ship the same day. But if you want to talk to somebody, maybe it's your first time buying gold and silver bullion, Email my friend Laura at jmbullion.com. She will make sure that you get taken care of. It's a reputable company that's been in business for nearly a decade and has done over $3 billion in sales. I love you. Big kiss, J.M. Bullion. What's going on? This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Doomberg Terminal. The Doomberg Terminal is one of my favorite new sub stacks to read, and the best part is it's free. And as a matter of fact, I just wrote an article a couple days ago where I quoted them because uh, I thought that their article was so prescient and so well put that uh, I had just had to go ahead and put some of it in my article too and, and pass it off as my own. Uh, you know, Doomberg takes a skeptical look at the financial markets in the same way that we do. It is a 100% free Substack to read. That link is in my podcast description. So if you're looking for some great new reading material, that's a great blog to check out all their content is free, and you can also follow them on Twitter for great content, I know uh, some of the writers there, I respect them, and uh, I do actively read it as well, I'm not just a member, I'm also the president, or what did he say in the hair club for men, I'm not just the president, I'm also a member, (laughs) I'm also a reader. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus are the original gangsters of the options market. These guys were checking in and tape reading and watching the options market long before unusual options activity became a selling point for so many services as it is now, but the Steam Room is a piece of software that has continually been improved now for almost a decade. I've known these guys since 2012. I think they had it back then. It is a beautiful piece of software that helps you organize and track money coming into the options market, which oftentimes can telegraph where underlying equities are going to go. The Steam Room is a one-of-a-kind piece of software. Sang and Wall Street Jesus will give you a free trial. If you want, just tell them QTR sent you if you want to check out the software, but it's the type of piece of software that can pay for itself if you don't use it like an asshole. Sang one of my good buddies, honest guy to do business with, and I love him to death. That information and all this information is in my podcast description. Finally, this podcast brought to you by my friend George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform, one of my favorite sources for information. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, Brent Johnson, and other people that are far more smarter than I'll ever be if I live to be 158 years old to put together the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform, which includes an incredible forum full of information, you know. Gammon is an honest guy trying to figure out the world of out-of-control central banks. It's that simple. He enlists these experts. They do, you know, a Q&A, what feels like at least once a day, so you can get your questions answered. They put up mock portfolios, model portfolios. The forums are chock full of good information for investors. So if you're looking for ideas, you're looking to bounce macro off of people, uh, <clears throat> and you're looking for somebody that takes their finance a little bit more serious than I do, uh, so you're going to get more research, less dick and fart jokes. Check out my friend George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro platform. That is... Link is also in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, Ken R. Chris Beed, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Minzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, and Camila soul I also want to shout out some of my newest patrons like Gregory Horn. Thank you, my friend Barry Kelly and Daniel Hamron Thank you guys for checking in. William Brooks, Peanut Pop, thank you. Ryan King, thanks so much. John Ritchie and Sam Hernandez, I see you guys. Charles Sharp and Mark Wilcox, my friend Anonymous from Canada, thank you so much, my homeboy Anthony Dench from Australia, and Nathan Hinchin, thank you guys, how about David Reed, Forrest Hendricks, and some other patrons that have relatively recently joined, like Doug Brimer, thank you so much, and my friend Matthew Allen, thank you, uh, Jim Thomas, Josh and Adam Rossi, thank you so much. Hot butter, what's going on? Appreciate you. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. It is not investment advice. I am not an investment advisor. I hold no licenses, no registrations, nothing with the SEC, nothing with FINRA, etc. We are literally just having an open-minded discussion for the purposes of trying to get all this shit out on the table. Honest people trying to figure out what, which fucking way is up and what is going on. And I don't have a clue, but maybe... William Cohen can help me out. I'm happy to introduce uh, William Cohen. He has been on the street for decades. He's a former senior Wall Street M&A investment banker. Uh, he has decades of experience doing that. He's worked for Merrill Lynch and J.P. Morgan. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author. He's written three nonfiction narratives about Wall Street Uh, One's called Money and Power, How Goldman Sachs Came to Rule the World. One is called House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. And one is called The Last Tycoons, The Secret History of Lazard Frere. I think is the right way to say that in company. I don't fucking know. Uh, And he's the winner of the 2007 uh, Financial Times Goldman Sachs Business Book of the Year award. Uh, and general all-around nice guy who now writes for – he's also a former Vanity Fair contributor. He's written for the Financial Times, the New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, The Atlantic. Jesus Christ, Bill. Bill, how are you?
1: I'm great, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: You're writing for Airmail now. Is that right?
1: I write for Airmail, and I've just become a founding partner of something called Puck, which is in a a journalist owned multimedia company platform, websites, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, where uh, you know the journalists uh, create the content and uh, own the company. and uh, it's a, it's about time, I might add. right? that uh, uh, the content creators, just like they do in, professional sports and in acting and in, in music it's about time that the journalists uh, uh and they do in writing books by the way uh it's about time that journalists uh own their content and own the equity in the companies that uh they're working
0: for is it puck at p-u-c-k is that what it's called
1: yes cool. it is
0: yeah that's uh, that's kind of like why i moved uh over to substack You know, I started. I didn't want to be like, "Oh, Mister, I'm going over to Substack with everybody else." Mm -hmm. But once I saw the model, and actually, after I spoke to somebody there, because they reached out to me and they were like, "Hey, you know, we're we're offering these contracts to people uh, to come over," and you know, they they wanted to pay me to come over and write a blog. I said, "I don't want a contract." I said, "You know, I'll I'll come over and write because I my website had uh, gotten taken down, and I was looking for a place to blog, anyways." So I said, I'll come over and just do my own thing because I like what you guys are doing. But my big concern was I don't want to be censored. You know, I read Glenn Greenwald. I read Barry Weiss. I read Matt Taibbi, all the all the people mm-hmm. that have defected to Substack to begin yep. with um, <clears throat> because they were being censored or they felt like they couldn't say what they wanted to say. And I said, just on that principle alone, Uh, that's one of the reasons I want to move my content over there. You know, I tweet a lot, Bill, and I worry that someday I'm going to wake up and my Twitter's just going to be gone. And and I don't get that feeling with Substack. And I think you're right on that you have to put the power back in the hands of the content creators, right?
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, the only thing um, that sort of interests me more about Puck than Substack, I mean, look, if I were on Substack, you know, I don't know that I uh, have the followers that uh, Matt Taibbi or, or, or the others uh, have. Uh, Barry was I mean, they're making a lot of money and that's great and I'm happy for them. Um, you know, uh, I find that uh, I benefit from editing. I like having an editor. Um, you know, I suppose I'd have more freedom there. Sometimes I don't like what the editors decide right uh there's some times where you know I, I i want to sort of say what i want to say without too much editing um but to that, so that's probably about 10 10 of the time that happens but the other 90 percent of the time i'm grateful for the uh editing uh and you know and the conversation and the you know the intellectual bouncing ideas back and forth with a group of other people and you know if you're just on your own on substack you know, not only you're the one churning it out all the time, um, cause you know, you've got subscribers who kind of want that, but you don't, um, uh, you don't have, uh, uh any, a- any editing. And so, uh, you don't have anybody, you're right. You, there's no censoring, but sometimes, you know, uh, you, one can benefit from, sure. uh, a, a little of that. Um, so, it's a balance, and I decided it would be better for me and more sort of exciting. I mean, look, I mean, um, you know, I don't see any deals right now for individual uh, uh, voices on Substack, you know, being bought out. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see um, Axel Springer buying individual uh, uh, voices on Substack, but they are, you know, they did pay up a billion dollars for Politico. They wanted Axios. Uh, You know, maybe one day they'll want Puck and, you know, I'll I'll be an equity beneficiary of that. Well, I
0: think as they realize that, you know, certain content creators, no matter what platform they're on, are going to be in demand. You know, the market is going to choose who it wants to hear from and what they're willing to pay for it. Um, Absolutely. As it should. Right. And once, uh, you know, larger corporations or Axel Springer or whoever start to see that, these content creators, in and of themselves, become recurring streams of revenue or recurring cash flow streams. Then you know it's it's a question of the economics of you know buying them out and packaging them up and maybe making them into a media organization. I, I don't know. The market is going to have its way with it, and I'm sure there will be some reversion to the mean, um, especially in the sense that you're talking about with editing. You know, I hate when people edit my stuff, and then often when they're finished editing it, I'm very grateful that they've edited it because they catch a lot of things but you know nobody likes to be told no right away or this is too verbose right away or this is too long-winded right away um but i definitely understand
1: as someone who also (laughs) writes books and that's primarily my main right occupation and 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 my books are long and involved and complicated um you know I, i would be uh, nowhere without my my editors. So uh, I get the editing thing. Uh, I've you know if I it may speak frankly, uh, uh, Chris. I find that um, uh, journalism uh, uh, publishers have gotten uh, editors have gotten a lot more squeamish right. about certain topics. Um, they. Don't want lawsuits. They don't want to be sued. They don't even like to be threatened to be sued. So uh, I find that at least a lot of the people that I write about are extremely wealthy and they think nothing of having their lawyers send threatening letters to publishers, which, you know, they do that for a reason. They do it because it works. It does have the unfortunate effect of getting these guys uh, to... Uh, you know, back off to you know, have us back off, which really irritates me uh, because that's not what I think journalism is all about. But that is unfortunately a reality of, uh, of, you know, commercial corporate journalism uh, today. Maybe you don't have that on Substack. Uh, I don't know what, how they, if they indemnify the writers or not, but, you know, uh, you know, we've got a lot of billionaires in this country, um, yeah. and they need to be written about and talked about, <laughs>
0: and
1: and questioned. But they also have a hair trigger when it comes to their, uh, you know, attorneys writing threatening letters that are effective.
0: Well, let's get down to brass tacks because you are really a unique person, and actually, we you know we had semi like crossed paths back in like 2014, I think, with the whole Herbalife yes. thing because you did some reporting yep. on that and uh but but more recently we got a chance to speak over the phone um and you know i I really found our conversation interesting and uh you know it was for a story that you were writing on kathy wood but one of the things i want to ask you before i get into that conversation is you know you sit at this intersection of having the investment banking experience knowing really the bowels of the capital markets and the system. And, you you know, you understand macro and you understand monetary policy. Um, and you also are actively involved on the media side of things. And, the, you know, the first question I want to ask you is, where is the financial media failing? Where are the mainstream financial media outlets failing? What are the stories that they're not covering or covering Incorrectly, in your opinion, that that need to be addressed that we should know about.
1: Uh, look, I mean, again, it probably get me in trouble, but um, and, and and you know, I have a lot of respect for for people who who write about uh, finance and and uh, uh, Wall Street. But uh, you know, I spent Chris uh, seventeen years as an M and banker. Uh, on Wall Street, and that's a long time uh, given, you know, what a tough life it can be. Uh, you know, no one's going to feel sorry for me because you get well paid, obviously, uh, well overpaid um, uh, by and large. What else can you do uh, that, uh, without taking personal financial risk and get the kind of re- money that you get from being a banker uh, on Wall Street? But, uh, you know, I spent 17 years... Uh, I don't think there's another person writing about Wall Street that has spent anything like that amount of time on Wall Street. Uh, you know so it's like somebody who um, uh, has never been a doctor writing about uh, you know surgery or, or uh, the medical profession I mean uh, it can be done uh, and, and it can be done pretty well but uh, you know who are the best people writing about uh, you know, uh, medicine or, or surgery or whatever. It's people like Antoine Gawande, uh, you know, the New Yorker who who are doctors themselves. Uh, and so, you know, I feel that, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for uh, the people who are financial journalists, but um, I feel that uh, the, uh, you know, executives of these companies, whether they're hedge funds the Kathy Woods of the world, yes, uh, 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 private equity guys, uh, uh, Wall Street guys. It's too easy to get these uh, journalists to just sort of uh, kowtow to their views and not to question them seriously and and sort of, uh, you know, become in effect uh, uh, shills. And I I use that word, you know, in a sad sad way, but I mean, they just become uh, shills for, I mean, honestly, I think the whole Kathy Wood phenomenon is just uh an example of financial journalists you know sort of falling in love with this uh idea of this uh you know a successful uh woman with whatever there's 60 billion dollars of aum now you know uh you know acting like the music man and being the pied piper of of the current uh, bull market and uh you know financial journalists love that and and, I, and you know very few I think I may be the only one uh, who questions her in and 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 I don't understand that and you know I find that sort of in other places too Um, so that's the real uh, failing of financial journalism today uh, is a failure to really uh, understand the nuances of finance and markets uh, and um, they're too easily um, manipulated uh, uh, and unwilling to push back on CEOs, hedge fund managers, uh, uh, Kathy Woods of the world. And, you know, I'm not because I understand their language. I understand their argo. I understand the nuances, just like Antoul Gawande understands the nuances of, of surgery uh and so it's a it's definitely a language and look um in there are people uh who write about finance who have dabbled in it whether it's you know michael lewis for a couple of years or bethany McLean for a couple of years or or others but i mean there's a difference between being like an analyst for a couple of years and working your way from the bottom to the top over 17 years uh, you just learn a lot more you, you know a lot more people you have great access people will talk to you But you know they also know that you know, or they have probably figured out by now that they can't Snow you and they can't you know, you're not going to be a pushover and some like that and some won't engage with me at all
0: Yeah, well, I think the problem is twofold right and we touched on this a little bit when we were speaking uh, a month or two ago i think the problem uh you know i think you're right in identifying the lack of pushback as an issue and that of course it becomes a breeding ground a fertile breeding ground for fraud and for uh just all types of moral hazards, charlatans charlatans exactly uh and i think that comes from two things i think that you know you say look while the people on Financial media may not have the experience in Wall Street that you or somebody else does. I just—I don't even go that far. I mean, I think a lot of them are just dumb. And I'm not—I'm not trying to be uh, an ass, and I'm not trying to, you know, make a sensationalist point. The point is that if you worked in financial media for fucking two decades and you still don't understand how the system works, even though you were never an M and banker and you never sat at the table, you know, any good journalist that. Poured through, you know, one annual report a year, or one, you know, subscription agreement in a year, or, you know, looked at the details of one merger transaction a year. Over the course of 20 years, should be able to start to put together the pieces of how the system works. Even if, you know, even if you didn't come from Goldman Sachs, if you weren't there fucking with the sausage press, seeing how the sausage was made, you still should be able to get it. And I think the problem is a lot of these people that work in the industry. And there's some great people in the industry. But I think a lot of the people just don't have learning curves. They just plateau. They either don't care, uh, they don't have any interest in caring, or they're just not that bright, and that's, you know, unfortunate. And I also think against the backdrop of monetary policy in this country, that idiocy from the media, being a shill, as you say, from the media, as well as just general excess everywhere from asset managers from corporations whatever is encouraged the entire system is calibrated to encourage all of this bullshit um, and so it's like well what choice do they have if you're in uh you know if you're if you're a lemming uh, then you know which direction are you walking you're walking downstream with the fed right
1: well uh, look, look there's no constituency for High interest rates and market crashes. What's the what's the, what's the constituency <laughs> for that? Right. There's a huge constituency for ever rising stock prices, low interest rates, easy money, lots of capital, uh, 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 creation of new businesses, hiring more people, technological innovation, yeah, businesses, IPOs. Okay. I mean, you know, come on.
0: It's it, but you can't even but, call them businesses at this point. Ninety percent of them. No no they're not generating any cash they're not producing a product or a service they're just you know they're just corporate circle jerks i don't even know what you call them that is just well
1: i mean specs are designed all whatever 450 of them to buy these companies that are (laughs) pre-revenue pre-income and just you know as you say to just uh you know continue the circle jerk the merry-go-round or whatever it is it's it's um But I I think there's another element to it. I I don't know. I don't. A lot of these people who write about finance and Wall Street, they're they're not dumb. I think they're smart, but but they don't know. Look, if you're let's be honest, if you're if you're a journalist or you're a writer, then probably, you know, math and economics and finance were not where you spent your time. Okay, so understanding an income statement and a balance sheet and a cash flow statement, how to read. You can read an annual report. I guarantee you these people, even if they do, I've had financial journalists call me up and say, you know, how did you find that contract? Where did you get that CEO's contract? Uh, I got it in a, from a public filing right. in a Securities Exchange Commission. But but 90 percent of people don't know that and they don't cover this and they don't read those documents. And even if they do read those documents, they don't understand, you know, margins and balance sheets and income statements and. You know, they just, you know, they've got the hook in their mouth on adjusted EBITDA and they just go for it instead <laughs> of questioning the BS of adjusted EBITDA that is proliferated everywhere now.
0: You can say and, and bullshit. Some
1: companies, it's total bullshit. There you go. And, you know, so uh, I think that uh, and then you have a proliferation of of uh, financial news networks. 24 seven they've got to fill that time and who do they fill it with they fill it with you know the hedge fund guys or the or the asset managers talking their own book and that's been going on for years and guess what it makes great copy people watch you know good ratings so you know it doesn't lend itself to pushing back it lends itself to you know and i love the guy but bill ackman going on cnbc and talking his book for half an hour right it's great it's great it's fascinating it's hugely entertaining but he's sitting there talking his book and talking your book begets you know greater wealth it's just the way it works and so it's a symbiotic relationship no one's gonna get in the middle of it and um you know uh i try not to buy into that at all and as a result you know some people won't talk to me because some people don't want to be questioned anything about what they uh do you know like for instance Larry Fink at BlackRock has never spoken to me never Henry Kravis never never they don't want to have anybody like me who understands uh their business asking them tough
0: questions and isn't in a perpetual state of you know amused right like you're not you're not walking around in a you know uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, like, wow, these guys are wonderful, you know? Like, you understand the reality of the situation. And and there's a sick, nasty side to Wall Street. Uh, of course. and And, and a, really everything, monetary policy, the way that it's run globally, but also, you know, <clears throat> just the, the all the different parts of the capital markets. There's gross, odious, you know, pornographic, disgusting <laughs> Uh, things going on Uh, and uh, you know the the system is set up so that if a loophole or a fraction of a loophole becomes available it becomes exploited immediately I mean SPACs are a perfect example of that even though I think that that wave has uh has started to crest but they you know why would they why would they take questions from somebody that understands the game and, and isn't in a perpetual state of wow aren't aren't you wonderful you know
1: they don't have to and they don't. Right. And by the way, I don't have subpoena power, so, you know, you just ignore me. And, well, and a lot a lot of them do. Uh, they just don't respond. And and it doesn't hurt. I mean, what's the hurt? I mean, they get access to the New York Times, <laughs> or the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, CNBC. They can just go direct. And, and I'd probably do the same thing.
0: It's that kind of, know. you know, well, it's your know-how and, and kind of where you're positioned among journalists in the industry, though, that I think is going to win you specific favor with people as well, too. I mean, I'm not, you know, going around inviting everybody onto my podcast because I'm not interested in listening to fucking everybody. You know what I mean? Like, I know what Melissa Lee's analysis of the situation is going to be, and I don't care. You know, I know what, you know, whoever, I know what Dan Ives is going to say about Tesla, right? (laughs) I know what Adam Jonas is going to say. You know, I'm not I'm not interested in that. So I invite you on because I know that you have a different perspective. And I think that, you know, while you may not get access to the head of BlackRock or whoever the hell you're talking about, it's going to win you favor with a group of people that are interested in, you know, objective truths and and the reality of the situation because they understand that, you know, life isn't about and especially the, the financial world isn't about being comfortable all the time. We don't have a right to feel comfortable all the time. And this is something me and you touched on when we were talking a couple months ago uh, about central bank policy in the country. And you know, one of the things that I said when we were discussing Kathy Wood was, <clears throat> I think asset managers, if you want to call them that, like her and Ross Gerber also comes to mind, are a product of monetary policy in this country that has absolutely uh, fooled investors retail and main street into believing that they have a right to make money and a right to feel comfortable at all times and this is a wide-ranging discussion that we could take into politics and other things which you know I'm not sure that we will but just just from a monetary policy standpoint when you rig the game in that manner uh you know you know are you surprised that it produces people like like Kathy Wood and Ross Gerber. I mean, I, the things that some of these people say, baffling.
1: Well, that was the point, one of the points of my airmail article, if you read it to the end. I mean, she started talking about, you know, genetic engineering and the companies she's investing in genetic engineering. She was literally spouting nonsense, words that were put together that have zero meaning. And, it's, and she passes it off as wisdom. And, you know, she's a, I'm sorry, she's a total charlatan. And I don't know, R- R- Oscar, maybe he's the same way, but she's a total charlatan. And, um, you know, she's had had a good year last year. Why? <laughs> because the Fed rescued her and all sorts of other people. I mean, they're just an unbelievable rescue mission that that uh, rescued anybody who owned stocks or bonds and uh or among other assets uh art nfts uh uh, you know bitcoins cryptocurrency uh homes you you name it i mean it it, again there's no constituency for a financial crisis had the fed not come in in march and april and done the biggest rescue program in history expanding their balance sheet from four billion trillion to something like near nine trillion now uh, and and essentially bailing out the debt markets by buying everything in sight uh, and, and, you know, lowering interest rates uh, down and, and raising the price of all those assets, uh, you know, we would have had a huge uh, a financial crisis, frankly, well-deserved financial crisis, because already back in February of 2020, you know, the junk bond market was completely and utterly mispriced. In February of 2020, the high yield bond was at about 5%, which I thought was absurd beyond belief. Now, you know, uh, uh, about a couple months ago, it was down below 4%. Now it's above 4%. It's still ridiculous. I mean, the risk that people are taking, buying junk bonds and getting a 4% yield is is absurd, but they can't help themselves. They don't know. They've just lost the plot. They think the Fed is just going to continue – to bail them out the Fed has created a monster does not know what to do does not know how to unwind it does not have the guts to unwind it. oh they definitely don't have out the guts. Of the business of manipulating interest rates so there's going to be a conflagration of major proportions and it's going to be and we don't know what's going to trigger it of course we never do uh but confidence will be lost once again and and the uh, stock market will uh fall dramatically and uh, bond uh, yields will spike dramatically, just like they did in March of 2020.
0: Yeah, I think that you're so first off, let's just say about Kathy Wood, I just want to clarify that that's your opinion that she's a charlatan. I share your opinion. Uh, but you know, objectively, she's got 60 billion under management, and she's done so well. So there, there's going to be a counter argument to that, that, uh, you know, oh, she, and I get it. And
1: I hear it all the time from,
0: the, um, from her. Fans. I'm sure you have. And I think you're 100 percent right. And I think that, you know, she is she's the product of this, uh, you know, black box, this corner that the Fed has painted itself uh, into. <laughs> I think that your your description of the Fed as um cowards, I think, is what you said, I think is <clears throat> dead on. Um, I, you know, I wrote an article back in 2018 on Seeking Alpha called The Fed is Gutless, and uh, by the time we realize it, it'll be too late. And this was, of course, yep. long before uh, QE infinity, uh, which we got right. as a result of, of COVID. I mean, think of how the market would be right now if, if the Fed hadn't stepped in and bailed everybody out. And, you know, the, the question is, you said before, there's no market for higher rates and and cost of capital rising and you know any type of news that could be misconstrued as uh or any kind of news that could be taken as you know slightly less than comfortable there's no market for it but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen it's well, of all, all of it is is an inevitable uh you know it's all of it is inevitable so the, the question is when is it going to happen and what is the what is that destruction going to look like when it does happen
1: well, I mean, I, I, again, I completely uh, agree with you, and that's why I've, uh, o- uh, over the last couple of years, spent time talking to this guy, Mark Spitznagel, at Universa.
0: Oh, he just, essentially... sent, he just sent me a book, that guy.
1: Right, it's called Safe Haven, which is yeah. coming out. I mean, Mark is, uh, uh, you know, if you're a hedge fund guy, uh, you have to do this If you are uh, have an endowment uh, in a university, I mean, you have to deal with Mark because... He, he's smart, and he understands risk, and he understands uh, how to help portfolio managers mitigate risk. And the, the, the only fly uh, criticism I have of Mark is that he hasn't uh, made the same product that he makes available to, to the Bill Ackmans of the world uh, available to, to small investors right. who also have a nest egg to protect and who are also going to be caught in the, down, the inevitable downdraft. Here when the Fed finally decides to pull the plug or the, or the or what's more likely to happen, because the Fed clearly isn't going to, you know, take the punch bowl away. As I like to say, you know, they're supposed to take the punch bowl away as the party's getting started right now. They're pouring more tequila in the punch bowl. And I don't even think there's any punch in the punch bowl anymore. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's just bath point- salts
0: at this point, Bill. It's just the, the Fed's just yeah. snorting bath salts at this point.
1: It's it, exactly, uh, and at some point, uh, it's it's so obvious that investors are going to lose confidence in this game, and they're not going to uh, uh, buy uh, junk bonds that yield four percent. They're going to say, "Excuse me, I'm taking huge risks here, owning this thing." Right. Once upon a time, when Mike Milken was running the show, for all of the greed and 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 deception that he used to to sell junk bonds not only were they yielding 10 11 or 12%, they also had warrants attached, if you Right, yeah, hell yeah. And so now, at 4%, suddenly people are thinking they're getting paid for the risks they're taking. They are not. And at some point, they're going to wake up. And they did wake up to that in March of 2020. The yield on junk bonds went up to 11.5% in about two weeks. So so they did uh, uh, come to their senses. And then the Fed stepped in, and then boom, it's like a clip. Right off the cliff, straight down, back to four percent, even under four percent. It's absurd. So, so uh, do you think
0: the bond market is capable of correcting? I mean, do you think there's enough to, firepower out there? I mean, then what happens? Then the Fed owns the entire bond market eventually, right? And then what? Then they buy stocks.
1: They already own the entire bond market. That's already a given. <laughs> I mean, why why would anybody be buying a junk bond yielding four percent? You would have to be insane. Believe- Exactly. I tell people that the bond market is uninvestable and, and that makes people nuts. So that's, that's like, you know, the, the bond market is like four times the size of the stock market, or it was maybe now it's like three times the size of the stock market. So that's trillions and trillions of dollars that is completely overvalued. The stock market, I mean, I don't even know what to say about the stock market other than where else are you going to be? I mean, you know, you have to, if you, if you buy dividend paying, stocks uh you know that that have uh, great managements and low leverage i mean that's the only place you can be and that's been a great place to be i mean the stock market you know uh from march 2009 to today that's uh you know 12 uh, <clears throat> years uh has uh, uh what are we up uh, five almost six times uh that's incredible. That I mean, was is there this is this the
0: parabolic move before the crash? Right? You always have a blow off top anytime sure. you goof the yeah. floof somewhere. Uh, so uh, is this to be are, October. are we witnessing it?
1: Look, I I think so, of course. But you know, I'm like a broken clock. I'm right twice a day. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I you know, you can invest in the bond market. That's out. Uh, uh, real estate is. A- incredibly uh, expensive all of a sudden again. Uh, uh, cryptocurrency, uh, I have one word for that. Please. I don't... Uh, NFTs, uh, all, all of these crazy meme stocks, don't get it. Uh, so, you know, there's a reason the stock market is at 35000 It's because where else are you going to uh, put your money think- uh, and get the right kind of reward for the risks you're taking
0: think of all this excess that's out there right say you're a skeptic on crypto right and jury's out on crypto i guess you know objectively i'm i'm done trying to pretend like i understand fucking where this is going to end with crypto but you know look some people think it's going to be a brand new asset class other people think it's worth zero let's just take the pessimistic view of crypto and say it's worth zero When you take the excess of all of the capital in the crypto market, okay, which is trillions. Trillions now,
1: unbelievably.
0: Right. All of the excess in pre-revenue, cash-burning companies that are essentially the stock market equivalent of leaving a flaming bag of dog shit on somebody's porch, right? I mean, they're literally nothing. They're worth, I, I say all the time, I think a lot of these companies are worth less than nothing because there's administrative costs that are going to be involved and resources that are going to be involved, you know, dissolving them, right? So so they're worth zero plus whatever it's going to cost to fucking get rid of them. Uh, Then you take all of the excess that's in all of the meme stocks, so you have names like AMC and GameStop and all this other shit that's you know, being valued at these astronomical valuations, and on top of that, you pile on the overall excess in the equity markets, and you could very easily make the case that equity markets are 50% overvalued. It could be more than that. Dave Collum would say like 80%. Let's just say 50% overvalued, right? We'll bring the Schiller PE down to fucking 20, right? Which is but, you know, semi normal, I guess. When you, you know, when you, you total up when, on, when you total up all that excess, you're talking about probably 10 trillion dollars or like 7 trillion dollars worth the excess. I mean, it is a yep. insane amount of froth out there right now. Yep. So what I mean, well, what's what's the catalyst that ropes all that in at once? Because that's well, no, we we never know. We never know what
1: the catalyst is. Uh, you know, uh, there was a catalyst twenty years ago after 9-11. There was uh, uh, a catalyst uh, in uh, two two thousand eight. There were several catalysts in you know in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, and and nobody you know. Um, or very few, obviously, Michael Lewis wrote about people who saw it and, and John Paulson saw it. I mean, uh, uh, people saw it and were smart, just like, you know, the, Mark Spitznagel sees it and is doing things about it. Um, so people do see it, but um, coming. But, you know, again, if, if, if for, for for retail investors like me, small investors, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, we just have we're just going to get caught in the downdraft. Uh, what's the catalyst going to be? It's imp- it's impossible uh, to know. I mean, who would have predicted that uh, a pandemic would uh, occur and that in March the markets would crash only to be bailed out? Uh, what are you going to do
0: when Robert Kaplan owns Tesla? Like, what do you know what I mean? You want to you want to fucking cross section of the brain of a fed governor like you have a you have a guy that is supposed to be objectively guiding monetary policy toward the dual mandate of price stability and job creation that thinks tesla is a high quality name to own in his personal portfolio how do you reconcile that bill
1: and he's a pre-ipo goldman partner
0: Uh, I think he's got, um, you know, he
1: says, all right, uh, I'm not going to fight the fed. I'm, uh, uh, I I am the fed momentum here. I, I I am the fed, so I'm not going to fight it. He knows what the fed's doing and has done. Right. So, uh, well, that's all you need to know, right? You don't, you
0: don't expect these guys to take themselves into the men's room at the courthouse, like in liar, liar, and start beating the shit out of themselves. Right. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're working in their own best interest i guess which it's insane I mean,
1: right i mean but what is tesla anyway it's it's i've written it's a carbon a, a credits company it's not a car company they sell carbon credits and there's no cost to that and that's 75% of their profit in the last 12 months i mean so so for that their their pe is 337 times what are you freaking kidding me? I mean, uh, you know, maybe there's a car company in there. Maybe there's a business plan in there somewhere. But at the <laughs> moment, it's a carbon credits company. And and a pretty good one, by the way. It's, um, it's, a, it's set up to sell carbon credits. It does. The market buys them. But over time, you know, other car companies are going to be uh, electric themselves. They're not going to need to buy those carbon credits. Then what's left? Uh, then where are we with Tesla? I mean... I mean, you know, as, as we know, that's um, Kathy Wood's uh, biggest uh, holding. So, you know, she's out there pumping all the time and sometimes dumping. And, you know, who cares? Nobody cares. The Redditors, <laughs> they, 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 you know, the Momentum people, everybody loves her. But, <laughs> you know, we, we all know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. We just don't know what the catalyst is. And then
0: she'll be the first to. You don't know, you think uh, you know. don't, don't you think retail I was having this conversation yesterday or a couple of days ago over dinner with a friend in New York City about the illusion of the government knowing what it's doing the illusion of there being regulations the illusion of people working in the best interest of the American public Don't you think if you sat down with the average plumber or the average welder or you know the average guy that goes to like my my corner bar here um And and I've had experiences like this because, you know, I all my friends are working class friends. And so every once in a while they you know, they know I do a podcast and they say, well, what do you think about this, this and this? You know, and then I I start going down some fucking rabbit hole and they're just sitting there with their jaw agape in complete disbelief of how the system works. Don't you think the average person, Bill, if they understood exactly what the Fed's role was, is uh, in. And how monetary policy worked and what their role is in guiding the stock market. Uh, And then you drop the uh, Kaplan story on them. Don't you think that the average person or even, you know, what's going on with Congress, right? Fucking Pelosi's husband is in there buying uh, companies before they win government contracts. Don't you think if you explain that to the average person? They would be absolutely floored, not only that there isn't any oversight, but just how the entire system works in general. I mean, don't you think they would riot? Uh,
1: Well, I I, I think that uh, people are smarter than maybe we're giving them credit for. And um, I think, unfortunately, the phenomenon of Trump... uh, Uh, is a reflection of that uh, uh, disillusionment with institutions in the system. And I think that at some point there'll be somebody who's not as big an asshole as Donald Trump, who will come along espousing many of the same viewpoints uh, in in a much more user-friendly package and will uh, have real... Uh, Real power, real sustainable power, uh, because I think our our institutions are failing us. We haven't had a a SEC doing its job since what, 20 plus years? I mean, certainly before, you know, uh, Mr. Surfer, uh, Congressman, uh, you know, out from California in the 2004 to 2008. Uh, front time frame where obviously the SEC completely failed in any kind of regulation. I mean now, I mean I I, I have hopes uh, for Gary Gensler because uh, I I know him to be a good guy, but uh, you know there's the a lot of uh, fraud and deception in the back market. I don't really see that being cleaned up any kind kind of like the right time frame. Um, And and that's, you know, and so, I mean, Gary Gensler is sort of our best hope at the moment for real regulation in in the financial industry. Obviously, FINRA is a joke uh, and has been and just does whatever the, you know, there's no such thing as self-regulation in in the financial uh, world. Um, And again, I think just too many people in government, in and out of government, don't understand uh, how these markets work. Uh, obviously Yellen does and, and, uh, uh, Powell do, uh, they, but you know, they, they're all in on, on interest rate manipulation. Uh, and again, there's no constituency for high interest rates in a crashing stock market, but so they're not going to do anything to, to, um, correct, uh, to take some air out of the balloon. I, I think, you know, that I gave a speech in Sun Valley uh, over the summer about all of this, and uh, I was sort of joking that I uh, would uh, love to be uh, on the uh, Fed Board of Governors and, uh, you know, make me chairman for uh, a month or two, and then I'll step down. But what I'll do is uh, uh, basically tell the market, that's it, Q QE infinity is over. Uh, we're done with this. It's been fun, a fun ride. Uh, you know, we've all made <laughs> a lot of money. Uh,
0: oh, that would go it's over now wonderfully. Over,
1: and the market would totally deflate, and that would be the best thing that could possibly happen. Yes, the best thing. We're well, we out of the business of manipulating interest rates. I think deal with it.
0: I have high hopes for Gensler too. Just on the basis of I think he's communicated better than a lot of uh, past SEC chairs that I've, uh, you know, I haven't been in the industry that long. But uh, he seems well, he's to not
1: beholden. <clears throat> he doesn't want to go. He's not anxious to go through the revolving door. And uh, I think he's you
0: know. I, I think he's just impressive, too. I watched a couple of yeah. his MIT lectures and yeah. he's obviously ex- exceptionally bright. And uh, yep. and he he seems interested in nipping things in the bud. Some of the statements that he's made about, you know, uh, if you're on the you know, if you're on the border, if you're not, you know, essentially saying if you're you may not be breaking the law, but you're breaking the spirit of the law um, that, you know, that those are things that he's going to look into. And um, I don't know. He comes off as a doer. He comes off. As, you know, I've already seen more correspondence from him. And granted, some of it is PR and some of its marketing on on the behalf of the SEC. Um, But I think when he came on, he enabled a lot of people in the enforcement division, too. I was reading an article that he uh, added to the staff in the enforcement division or enabled other people in the enforcement division to bring actions or to issue subpoenas. I can't remember. Um, But I I have high hopes for him. I think, you know, look, nobody's going to be perfect in that position. But um, but I think uh, more regulation is better than um, less regulation when it comes to Breaking the law, people say, "Oh, well, you're a libertarian. You know, how could you be calling for more regulation? You're Mr. Anti-government, blah 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 blah." But uh, you know what people fail to realize is that libertarians want you know civility and they want the law to be upheld. You know, the, one of the one of the few things that they want the government to do is to uphold the law. Uh, and so I think that um, you know I have high ho- higher hopes for him uh, than than Clayton.
1: Well. I, I agree with you. Uh, I would love Marshall to see White. him make an example
0: Pleasant. out of some people uh, and, and, and you know, make a statement through some actions. Um, maybe say something without saying something here early on in his tenure. I think he's got an interesting opportunity to do that.
1: Well, I, I mean, I agree. And I think he's got wind in his sails and uh, the backing of the progressives. And I think... Uh, He's ambitious. I think he wants to be Treasury Secretary, so he wants to do a good job as SEC (laughs) chairman. And, uh, you know, I think we're at a very precarious moment, as we've been talking about, in the financial markets and and in all asset classes. So, you know, if the Fed's not going to take the air out of the balloon or take the punch bowl away, uh, I think Gary Gensler has the potential to be a real... Uh, hero uh, by doing, you know, trying to do some of the things that the Fed won't do.
0: Yeah, I want to get your reaction to uh, what happened last week or two weeks ago, which is something that I wrote about on my Substack a couple of days ago. And that is uh, these women in Congress, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ocasio Cortez, and Ayanna Presley coming together to urge Joe Biden. To not have Jerome Powell um, renominated, renominated, Re-employed right, at, yeah. right. And, and, and ostensibly, what they want is somebody more dovish. They said that Powell hasn't given enough attention to, you know, racial inequality or climate change, and they want a new. You know, it's time to rethink the Fed. Essentially, is is what they said. And you know, at first, I was a little. Uh, on the fence because I'm like, yeah, you know, definitely throw Powell out. And then you realize, okay, well, they want somebody more dovish. And it's like, wow, okay. So we would really just hit hyperdrive to full modern monetary theory, even more so than we already have. And, and the destruction of the dollar. And, and, and I don't even think these women know what they want. And I don't think they understand what the hell is going on. And I'm interested in your take on that. Did you see that story? And what do you think?
1: Yes. Well, look, uh, uh, my view is that, uh, if, if Jay Powell is not willing to uh, pull the plug on QE infinity, he has to go because that's what needs to happen now.
0: Yeah, but that's not what they're arguing.
1: I, I understand. I understand. what I understand their, their argument. And um, I, I would I think, honestly, I would prefer to have a Jay Powell who pulls the plug than uh, a modern monetary theorist because this somehow this idea that deficits don't matter and debt doesn't matter, that is the biggest crock of economic bullshit I've ever heard in my life. So uh, that, going down that path, is a total disaster. That will be, uh, we're already down that path. We've got 28 trillion now of debt and three or four trillion dollars of deficits. I mean, if, if, when and if interest rates go up, who's going to, you know, who's going to default? I mean, we're we're one of the biggest creditor uh, debtor, debtor nations, uh, you know, around, Uh, you know, we're not quite Japan yet on a debt to GDP basis, but we're on our way. And, and if uh, modern monetary theorists, you know, get into (laughs) the bed, we're going to surpass Japan. It, it, and, and, and it's, I mean, it's a, it, that's just a total disaster. So I think uh, i would prefer a Jay Powell who comes to his senses on uh, quantitative easing. But if he doesn't, then uh, I would prefer, uh, I don't know, if, I don't know whether Lael Brainerd uh, where she stands on QE, but we need uh, somebody in there who's not a modern monetary theorist uh, and who is willing to pull the plug on QE. I'm sure there's well, somebody that's not, out there. It's just not going to happen.
0: The only question is, Who's going to be left holding the flaming bag of shit when it all collapses? That's the only question. The, you know, right? th- I think thinking the idea that we're going to have somebody come in and say, whoa, we got to stop this party is ridiculous because nobody in the political spectrum is going to nominate somebody that wants to do that. And nobody put in place at the Fed is going to have the guts to do it. So I think really the only question is who's going to be in there that's going to wind up being the scapegoat when the whole thing comes crashing down? I actually thought that was going to be Powell. I couldn't believe that. It might yet be Powell. That's true. That's true. When they transition. October is right around the corner. Why do you
1: keep bringing up October? Because that's when the markets crash.
0: Oh, is that right?
1: Yes. If you look at the history of financial crises, the preponderance of them are in October. I don't know why, but obviously, in 2008, uh, 1929, Uh, so don't, don't, don't ask me why people are back from vacation. I don't know. Maybe their heads are on straight again. I don't know, but that's, that's when it happens. So, um, well shit, I got to make I some calls
0: then. Yeah.
1: Got to get on to it. Quote, to quote David
0: state Faber state. when he ran up from yeah. the desk on CNBC, I got to make some calls, you know, that day the market was <laughs> crashing. That's <You> right. <laughs> um, un- uh, unbelievable resilience shown by him in the face of, uh, the most minuscule of pressure, Right. Going into the covid pandemic, when the market started crashing, Scott Wapner wrote on his Twitter, you know, shouldn't we just close the markets? Can't we just close the markets? It's like, no, we can't. Close our
1: eyes. Pretend it's not happening. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe if I get on a plane and fly to Acapulco uh, where they don't
1: you know, circle the world in the opposite direction in time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: will go back i mean we could uh, we, like trying like trying to fucking roll back the odometer at the end of ferris bueller's day off right put the car in reverse right, exactly. maybe the odometer right. will roll back it's right, like right. oh my god is this the best fucking idea you could come up with last thing i want to ask you about <clears throat> bill and i appreciate your time today man um i want to talk about and i have no idea where you stand politically but uh, i'm interested in what your take is on the pandemic, our response to the pandemic, and and where things are right now in terms of uh, the government's uh, response—too uh, much, too little, on time, too late, too early—what do you think? What do you think of where we are right you, now?
1: You, you really want to get me in trouble? I I think <laughs> yes, I do. Um, it's uh incomprehensible to me. A good that start. the wealthiest country on earth, the most scientifically advanced country on earth, um, has the most COVID deaths. The the mo- you know handled handled this pandemic in the worst possible fashion of any country on the face of the earth, has more per capita deaths. Other than any uh, country on the face of the earth, we're now at about 53% vaccination. Countries in Europe uh, are at over 70%. We created the vaccine; we have it in abundance, and we have 47% of our country that won't take it, which is, you know, why you know we're once again uh, at the top of the charts on COVID infections and COVID deaths. It's it's all preventable. It's unbelievably sad. Uh, it's pathetic, um, you know. Again, uh, uh, obviously. Uh, when you
0: say it's all preventable, what do you mean? Because, I mean, you know, that COVID is going to be here, right? And so, j- know, okay, just th- there's always going to be COVID deaths. You mean, th- you know, where we are, kind of stacking up globally against these other countries?
1: Yes, and obviously, the other forty-seven percent of the people, you know. Uh, need to get vaccinated, just like they do for smallpox and polio and whooping cough and all the other things that people get vaccinated for before, you know, the day after they're born or the day they're born. Uh, you know, w- w- this, uh, I mean, this idea that uh, uh, they'd rather take horse tranquilizer or bleach into their system as opposed to a vaccine, I mean, is i mean i i just i mean look we're creating wow. we we, I... ha, we have two americas we are fomenting addition you know two americas it's really sad i mean we we had a civil war we were we are a very divided country bordering on ungovernable and um you know it could be the beginning of the end for this experiment uh this national uh, democratic uh republic e- experiment um you know obviously if we had a parliamentary form of government like they do in the uk and elsewhere uh you know we would have picked better leaders uh and you know those that were failing us would be you know moved out much more quickly uh so i'm not sure the system's working um it's working at making people uh who are really good at what they do very rich Uh, It's creating, it's very good at creating income inequality. It's really good at creating divisiveness. Uh, You know, I mean, I guess it's, I mean, this is a circumstance where, you know, an authoritarian government like in China, you know, just tells people what to do and they have no choice but to do it. And therefore their pandemic deaths are a small fraction of ours. We're an open society and nobody in America likes to be told what to do. You can't be told what to do. You can't take away my guns. You know, I got to be able to kill anybody I want in a shooting spree at, a, uh, at an elementary school. That's all good. I think there's um, a huge
0: difference between I want to own a handgun and I want to be able to kill everybody in a shooting spree at an elementary school. Of I course
1: think... there is. Of course there is. But right. why, why do you need a handgun? I mean, if you're. Why do I need you're... a handgun?
0: Because I live in Philadelphia. That's why. Okay. Well, I live in New York City, and I don't
1: feel the need, you know, for, for a handgun. But well, uh, you know, if you're a hunter, I get it. I mean, no, I'm
0: not a hunter. I I, I don't. I I actually don't even like to hunt, and I and I don't really eat meat. I don't like to hunt either. Right. So I own I own handguns I don't like for guns, my own. But that's right. So I own handguns for my own personal protection. I mean, do you, do you think I shouldn't be? And I've yeah. you know went through the pre the the requisite, uh, you know. Yeah. No.
1: no uh, I, I. I. Look. I. I get all that. It's not for me, but I get it. Why it might be for you. What I, what I'm just saying is, you know, this is a country where nobody likes to be told what to do or asked to do about anything. We have very little sense of also the known, also known as freedom. Also, also known as freedom. But, you know, there are a lot of things that we don't, uh, aren't, we don't have, you know, we have to pay taxes. We have to wear seatbelts. Right. Right. Uh, there, there are, you know, we have to, uh, uh, you know, we don't smoke on planes anymore. I mean, there are a lot of things that we, uh, 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 rights and freedoms that we've given up to benefit the common wheel. And I would say, generally speaking, uh, those are things we can, A, live with, and do benefit us uh, on a a wider uh, uh, societal level. And, uh, you know, I think taking a vaccine that is clearly shown to work uh, and is a miracle, frankly, uh, whoever thought we'd get it this quickly and it would be this effective is I, something we all should do. But, you know, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Uh, and and then, unfortunately, you know, if you're, a, say, a radio talk show host and you've been preaching the gospel of uh, anti-vaccination. And next thing you know, you get COVID and you die and you say on your deathbed, I was wrong. Well, that's. You have to live with those consequences I'd rather not take that risk
0: When you say um, So there's a couple things I want to unpack there First off, I mean, do you feel as sufficiently Motivated to preach for everybody To get a flu shot as you do for the COVID vaccine? Sure, I do So you think that everyone should get a flu shot as well?
1: I get a flu shot I mean, look, it's a personal choice If you don't want to get a flu shot, don't get a flu shot If you don't want to get a vaccine, don't get a vaccine Right
0: and when if you if you
1: want to don't get a vaccine and then go party at a you know bar in downtown Philly, you know, be my yeah. guest. Do whatever you want. I don't care. Anybody can do <laughs> whatever they want. That's fine. But we have to live with the you know what you're doing or you, by your reckless. You know, you can get in a car, drive drunk without your seatbelt uh, on the wrong side of the Taconic. Uh, And that's fine. There are going to be consequences that you can do that. This is a free country. You can do that if you want. You're going to probably kill yourself and you're going to kill a bunch of other people too. But, you know, uh, you know, as, as Mark Quixote said in my article uh, about Kathy Wood in airmail, uh, you know, you know, if if you're going to be completely uh, out of control uh, with other people's money, you know, then if it's your own money, that's fine. But now you've got 60 billion of other people's money that you're putting at risk every day because of your cockamamie uh, theories about growth and valuation. And you like the spotlight. You like being on CNBC and Bloomberg and et cetera, et cetera. And you'll talk to everybody but me, who's the only one to question you. Uh, You know, I just think that, if you're a fiduciary for other people, if you're responsible for, you want to take your own life, God bless you. Take your own life, do whatever the heck you want with your own life. You know, you know, full put, you know, ingest the COVID virus and then go into, uh, you know, do whatever you want. And if you want to kill yourself that way, that's fine. Do what you want. But when you start uh, infecting other people or, driving a drunk without your seatbelt on the wrong side of the Taconic uh, or, or or investing $60 billion of people's money in incredibly overvalued stocks uh, and claim your, uh, you know, a, a visionary, then, you know, then I think you need to, you know, we need to find a way to, I mean, if it were me, I would never invest a penny with her and I haven't. So I don't understand why people do that, but,
0: They do, so. Well, that's what makes a market. Clearly. You know what I mean? I mean, people have differences of opinions on everything, not just, you know. For every
1: winner, there's a loser. That's the nature of the market. Exactly. Every day. Every second of every day.
0: Exactly. It's a zero-sum game. And objectively, there's always going to be objective truths, and there's always going to be objective best practices for, you know, people's quality of life when you talk about things like gun ownership or you talk about things like, you know, the vaccine, you talk about COVID and, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of things we could parse out of that discussion where we would have disagreements on. But I think the one thing that we both want is we both want the end game of, you know, I, I think the highest quality of life for us and for those that we love and for the people around us. Um, and, you know, it's just a question of whether or not you're able to have the open dialogue and hash it out uh, to get there. And uh, I think that, you know, I think when you talk about asset management and you bring up the example of you know any asset manager, you know I think the question becomes, you know where where does the line for regulation when you're going to be a fiduciary, um, you know, what, I don't really know where you would where you would step in in this case because if you look at a chart of the Arc Innovation Fund, it's done nothing but go up. You know, you look at her assets Except under management year. and it's done nothing that's gone up. So it's like, how the hell do you make the argument that she needs to be, you know, either right. regulated or she needs to have something? No. To be... The problem is that she baffles people with uh, things that they don't understand that sound great. And so people that are no, they don't
1: even sound great. Right. It's total bullshit. But they Verbal sound diarrhea. great to
0: people that don't understand them. Right. You know yeah, what I mean?
1: No, I mean, and, and you look at her performance in 2020, thanks to the Fed, and you say, oh, well, of course, this woman is a genius. You look at her performance in 2021, basically flat, when the market's up 18%, and, you, and but her assets under management keep going up, and but she proselytizes, she's a proselytizer. <laughs> she, she goes on CNBC and Bloomberg and Fox News or whatever, business news, and just talks her book all day long. And she looks, you know, great and she's smart and she's experienced and she's got a good huge following and people eat it up with a spoon. Bill, Worth- they, you know what? It's America. Go for it. Do what you want. But, you know, <laughs> there's going to be a day of reckoning with a Kathy Wood and not only just Kathy Wood. It's as we're talking about It's well beyond Kathy Wood at this point. Bill- it's just a personification uh, 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 the easy personification right. of the incredible excess that exists in the markets today.
0: Exactly, and that is that's where we both uh, agreed when we spoke a couple months ago and and precisely right. why i thought your perspective would be interesting because it's exactly the same as mine and i like to live in an echo chamber and that's <laughs> right, my that's my right to do so you know and yeah. of course kathy wood is welcome on the show anytime and i'm sure you would love to come on and and speak to her right if she comes on of course all right she, so she's she, she, she got an open invitation to refute any invitation. of this. right exactly
1: yeah of course it's sort of like you know the same as mitch mcconnell's open invitation to go uh you know on the rachel maddow show he's got an open invitation but uh guess who ain't gonna you know take up that open invitation
0: well and i have a lot of respect even for people that i don't agree with that take the time to try to you know go and talk to people with opposing viewpoints like i love when you know people that are on the far right you know go on bill maher You know, or like when people that are on the far left, you know, take time to go on Fox News. And some of them have done that. And I have I have respect for that because, you know, that they're stepping out of their comfort zone a little bit. And above all, whether or not I respect, uh, you know, whether or not I agree with whatever ideologies you're peddling, uh, I respect the fact that you're willing to have an open debate and open discourse. And, you know, look, there's a million things I would like to talk to you about uh, that you said before. We're running low on time. I want to thank you very much for coming on. I would love to have you back um, and, and talk uh, a lot of other things. So hopefully uh, you can come back sure. on and tell my listeners where they can find you if they're looking for, uh, for your work and, uh, and your new book and everything.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, there's I uh, look, I've enjoyed this immensely too, Chris. And I always enjoy speaking with you. Um, you know, my website is WilliamCohan.com. It's not a commerce oriented website, but, a bunch of my, uh, uh, articles and books are there. All my books are there. News is my new, uh, outlet, but you know, I write for all sorts of other publications too. I mean, just, you know, buy, uh, read my stuff. Don't read my stuff. Buy my books. Don't buy my books. Again, I, I don't care. I hate, I'm not a self promoter. I don't like that. I, I'm trying to, um, you know, just have people understand what's going on in the markets. So I feel like that's my purpose in life. That's why I had to endure close to 20 years as an investment banker. And why I write about it uh, uh, is because I believe people need to know, they need to be better educated about what they're doing, and they're free to listen or not. And most of the time they don't listen, so that's fine too.
0: That's all right. Now you know how I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, say, I say the but, same thing. I say, you know, yeah. people come, people take – it's fascinating to me that people take the time to complain and like online reviews about the podcast, you know, like one star. I'm like, I right, find one star. Like, who cares? But right. like, why, why would you even waste your time writing that if you don't like it? You know, like I, I see something I don't like. I just don't fucking listen to it. I don't pay attention to it. I don't waste any time on it at all. Even writing a negative whatever. But I say the same thing. Listen or don't listen. Who gives a shit? We both have lives. We both have families that we love. We both have right. shit to do. I appreciate your exactly. time very much, man. Can we talk again okay. in maybe like a month or two? Whenever you like. All right, Bill. Know. Thanks so Thank much. You. That was that was the one, the only. Bill Cohen, wonderful guy. A lot of things, of course, politically, we could talk about there. Maybe we'll get into that discussion one of these days. Um, but it was my conversation with him about monetary policy a couple months ago that I really wanted to bring him on for. Appreciate his perspective. I'll put his information in the podcast profile. Thank you so much for your continued support. I want to give an extra shout out. To uh, Kashumba, Randy Carter, and T. Gaghiati, Gag- Gag- who are um, founding members of my Fringe Finance Substack. the link to that is also in my podcast description, so if you're looking to read, I write almost daily on my Substack. stack um, it's on my Twitter, it's in the podcast description if you're looking for more of my diarrhea of the brain, that's pretty much all I can say I'm offering, just pure bilge, you know, emptying the old brain bilge pump onto a blog. But uh, it's cathartic for me. And so I appreciate you guys very much for your continued support. And I am out of here. Peace.